Good morning, good evening, good night, wherever, however, and whenever you're listening. Welcome to another episode of The Melanin Report. I'm your host, Marquise Lufton, and we have another dope interview for you today. Today, we have Dr. Adara Landry, who is an emergency medicine doctor at Harvard. I cannot wait to get into these details and find out what exactly is emergency medicine. We are going to get into all of the great details about her story and what made her get into emergency medicine. Again, this is the Melanin Report, and if you have not listened to Monday's show, Monday show, then friend, what are you doing? I highly suggest you check out Monday's show where we discuss the top five headlines that affect your week this week. Again, our guest today is Dr. Adara Landry. Excuse me. How you doing? Okay. <laughs> How you doing today? Uh, I'm doing well. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. So, um, so let's just jump right into it. Um, because I read your bio, and you know, um, I'm probably um, among a long list of people that say that you are great, amazing, and am thoroughly impressed. So, can you discuss uh, the challenges you faced in your career and how you overcame them, particularly as a woman in emergency medicine? Oh man, well, there's so many. Um... I, you know, I would say probably the, the cornerstone of um, what I, I I speak about, I write about, I, I tell my mentors and my mentees um, is the importance of connecting with people mm. and um, focusing on those connections um, and the people around you more than, let's say, projects and deadlines and commitments and those sorts of things. And I would say, you know, I started my journey uh, I guess you could say when I was 16, mm-hmm. I moved out of my parents' house. I went to Berkeley. Um, I was, um, you know, a one hour flight away, but that seemed like a really long distance considering I grew up in a very um, tight knit family. Mm-hmm. And when I got to Berkeley, you know, I was coming with this background of being a pretty motivated high school student. And I was, you know, I stood out a lot from like my academic achievements. And when I got to Berkeley, I was in this like, huge sea of people who were also equally motivated Mm. and very driven. And I did not understand what it meant to succeed in such a large pool of talent. Mm. Um, And so I actually struggled a lot with um, trying to find my own path towards medicine. I knew I wanted to be a doctor, um, but it was really hard finding those people, those connections that would help me get there. And so I, I um, you know, was able to get into medical school. I, I went to UCLA, which is a great medical school. Um, and even there, which is a smaller, I would say it's a smaller pool of people, but the, um, the, the talent, the strength of each individual is even stronger because it's mm. so hard to get into medical school. We're talking like 10,000 people apply for maybe 150 spots. Wow. And so it's it's quite competitive to get into medical school. And so when you get there, it's like everyone was cream of the crop at their university. Mm. And um, it wasn't probably until the end of my medical school journey where I met someone, another Black woman, who really showed me what mentorship looks like and mm. the value of having someone on my team. And so... Um, after meeting with her a few times and just sort of hearing um, the the benefits of of being mentored and and coached and sponsored, I started building a bigger team, a bigger team of people, and that really helped open doors. And that's why I tell a lot of my my mentees. Um, so I'm a physician, but I work in academia, mm-hmm. and so that means I help train other people to become doctors as well. And so I tell those other medical students and residents like. The most successful people I know are the most connected people I know. Yeah. And I focus a lot on really trying to understand the value, like why people come to Harvard. It's not because of the the landscape of, of the of the buildings or anything <laughs> like that. It's it's the people within those buildings. And so yeah. you really want to build those connections. And so a, a large part of who I am is really focusing on reaching out to people, starting conversations. Um, building that network is really important. Ah, yeah. Um, uh, we hear all the time that your net worth is your network. 
Uh, well, well, your network is your net worth. Um, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you, um, you said something that 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 I really want to hit on because this is something that is um, extraordinary. Uh, so, you attended UC Berkeley at the age of sixteen years old. Uh, so, can you can you tell us uh, about that um, and, and how this early start? Uh, shaped your approach to education and your career path in in, um, medicine? I was pretty used to sort of being the young one. I mean, you know, you you read these like, um, you know, articles online where it's like eight years old in college. Like I wasn't like that type of young. Mm -hmm. I think I was I was young where I could fit in with the crowd, you know, of, of my peers and people wouldn't necessarily know that I was two years younger than them. So when I started high school, I was 12. And wow. so, you know, I remember being in a class, um, I think I, I was in like maybe, maybe it was Spanish one or algebra, I don't remember, with people who were 17, um, 17 18 years old. I, I mean, I had classes with a huge age range because there were some some students who were like taking a class as a senior and I was mm. a fr- freshman. And so I think at that point, there was a big age gap visibly as well as even probably my, probably my maturity level too. Um but I think I was able to catch up pretty quickly um, mm. and hold my own. I think my parents, you know, um, never really tried to stifle my ambition. I think that's quite important. Um, in my household, you know, they focused a lot more on education than they did, like making sure that I had, you know, the newest clothing Mm. or I was going to parties or, you know, I was the most popular person like that. None of that mattered to my parents. Um, When it came to me, I think they were way more focused on like getting me into a good school and, and focusing on just building a a pretty strong amount of curiosity from an education academic standpoint. So when I got to Berkeley, yeah, I was, I was definitely younger. I remember going out like, you know, with people and they were like, Oh, like we need to, we're going to try to go to this 18 and up club. And, and they're like, dare come with us. And I didn't have a fake ID at the time. I did actually, I never actually got a fake ID, but I did borrow someone else's fake ID from oh. time to time. Just, yeah, just, you know, whatever. You're in college. <laughs> you're and and Berkeley is such a place where it's like, so, I mean, it's a very social place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are like always wanting to hang out and have fun. And so um, I, you know, I think I probably did not struggle when it came to, the academic side of things i think the harder part was when you know the 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 peers around me were turning 21 Mm. and i was and i was still like 18. um and then there was a bit you know there's a big difference especially when you're living in the dorms with people who are like senior way more senior than you are and then and then apartment complexes or or people who are grad students and you're like 17 and there's like 25 year olds living next to you like that's a pretty big age difference yeah yeah. So, um, how how did you navigate that being being so young and not be intimidated? Um, because I can't imagine being 16, 17 years old and and not only sharing space but holding space, you know, with folks that are twenty one years and older. I think actually, you know, um, people are becoming intimidated more by like I think me or like impressed by me. Oh. So I, and I think actually there was like a very strong protective nature where um, people really wanted me to do well. And so I, you know, there wasn't much temptation um, for me to like break rules or do things that weren't um, allowed or advised, <laughs> advised um, by like, you know, my mentors or supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was actually, you know, I think it, what, what happened was I hung around good people. And, mm. and this is what I, you know, I, I definitely mention this a lot to uh, even my patients who come in, like you can really tell um, a friend immediately if, if, if they are really trying to do something that's good for you and or um, not trying to tear you down as you do good things for yourself. Mm. And so, um, you know, everyone knew I was pre-med. I wanted to be a doctor. And so I don't think the people around me were really trying to prevent that from happening. They were like very supportive um if i if i said i needed to study they weren't like trying to tempt me people weren't trying to get me to drink or do drugs or any of those sorts of things <laughs> yeah. around me they were like you know she's pre-med um and you know i i, I felt like I, I didn't feel tempted i would say 
to, to stray out of like the, the straight and narrow, narrow path. Oh, that's great. So so then this um this this tribe of folks that you um that that you had uh, during during your undergrad, they were kind of like a um a uh, protective cocoon. I'll say then. I think my dad and my mom, they did a really good job as far as like teaching us how to sort of recruit good friends. Mm. I mean, I think that's really important <laughs> is just who you put in your tribe um, and who you surround yourself with, because th- that's going to have the, the best dividends in life. Again, going back to that network, the people you surround yourself with, like if you're if, like I said, if you're trying to get someplace and you probably have heard this before, if you're trying to get someplace and people around you are deliberately distracting you or pulling you down or doubting you. They're not your. They aren't. They aren't your friends. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I would say it's time to reevaluate their purpose in your life. It certainly isn't to help you go forward. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, uh, I I teach um, podcasting, and and one of the things that I tell the uh, students that I teach podcasting to is that if your friends, you know, aren't aren't at least sharing your podcast, then maybe you should reevaluate that friendship. The entertainment aspect, they may not. You know, they may not necessarily like it, but the least that they can do is is show that little bit of support um, and, and help get it into the ethosphere. Um, so so uh, for you, your your journey, uh, it includes experiences at UC Berkeley, UCLA, NYU and Harvard. Um, so how have these institutions shape your perspective on education and professional development? So I am um, part of the Harvard Medical School Admissions Committee. So I interview people. I interviewed someone today, for instance, um, to to apply, who's applying into our medical school. And um, I've been on other admissions committees, too. And I would say that the biggest thing that it has um, shown me is the power of opportunity. Mm. And And if you are just the same child and you are in a school system that has phenomenal teachers who truly care about you, access to science and um, top athletics or you know choirs and all of these really well-developed programs. And you also have funds um, from your parents or scholarships or through the school for preparation testing, you know, SATs, ACTs, MCAT, GRE, whatever, LSATs, all those exam board scores, things like that. Um, If you also have parents or guardians and teachers who tell you that you can be the best of whatever it is you're trying to be, right? Those, Those are opportunities that can really shape the same child in one school Versus if you were to take that same child and put them in another school where those things weren't there, right? Like the potential mm. is going to completely change. Right. And where they're going to go completely changes. So it honestly makes me feel um, honored to see how successful one person can become. When I'm reading an application, I'm like, wow, this student has done more in, in, but in their 18, 20 years of life than, than, I, than I have achieved because of all of those amazing opportunities that they were handed, not handed, but but given to them because of where they are, who, where they were born, mm-hmm. who raised them. And it also makes me feel really sad um, and discouraged knowing that there are a lot of people with incredible potential out there who are not stifled because of their own skill set or their own ambition, but because they just lack the ease of access to opportunity right. that some others are given. My children are a perfect example, right? Like they're going to have so much more than what I had just because of who I am and who my husband is. Like mm-hmm. they're going to have a lot more opportunity. And I wouldn't, I, I, I would be lying to you if I said, no, they're going to struggle the same way I did or my parents did. It, it's getting easier for you know my family line. Um, and, and I'm not, ashamed of that like i want it i don't want my kids to struggle the way i did i I want it to be easier for them right and i also admit that like because it's going to be easier for them it's going to be even harder someone else in a different environment is going to have to work even harder to prove their 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 path right because they're competing against someone who's going to have tutors private coaches private schools all of those sorts of things it's not a fair playing field that's exactly what i see and and so um in in your mentorship how do you um um attack 
um, this this leveling of the field for your mentees? Yeah, I mean, so my mentees are coming in and they're at a top institution. So actually one of the reasons why I stepped down from my, I had a, um, a position where I was in charge of, um, or I was one of the few people in charge of training residents. It was a wonderful position. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I realized was that um, I was getting a lot of people reaching out to me from Twitter, on Twitter and other places who were not at such a, um, a well-resourced institution mm-hmm. like Harvard. And, and they were struggling with such large fundamental um, skill sets that I knew that if I didn't help them on those, on the trajectory to like gain these skills that their entire career could be um, vulnerable wow. versus when I was helping those who were at Harvard, who were in these like, you know, well, well-resourced programs, I might be coming into the conversation and they're asking me these like very small fine tuned questions, but they're already like on their way to get their goal. Like they're mm-hmm. already almost there, if not already there. So what I, what I thought about was like, wow, I'm spending so much energy helping people who are like already incredibly accomplished. Like they are, they are there. They're mm-hmm. nearly exactly where they want to be. And I'm just fine tuning their problems versus there's this huge population of people who are at smaller programs or just trying to get into the system. And they're like, how do I find a mentor? Mm. How do I, how do I apply to a program? How do I write a a personal statement, right? Like much bigger problems. And I felt really drawn to that. Mm. And so that's why I've moved my career out of really helping folks who are, I think, quite ambitious, quite successful, have access to resources to people who I think need a lot more. Now, you mentioned uh, your your career and and you have done um, so much, so much, so much. Um, uh, first and foremost, congratulations on everything you've done. Um, um, I, I particularly uh, want to concentrate right now on on your uh, published pieces. Um, you, you've been published in, in outlets uh, such as Teen Vogue, Vogue, CNBC, um, Harvest Business Review, and Fast Company. Um, so how do you balance your roles as a medical professional, educator, and contributor to mainstream media and motherhood? I know. It's a lot. It is a lot. Um, first, I'm going to say that I have um, very strict boundaries. Mm. Right. If you had asked me to meet at five o'clock or six o'clock or on a Sunday or Saturday, I probably would have said no. Actually, I'm pretty certain I would have said no <laughs> because and not, and not anything about you, but just because that's when I'm getting my kids mm. and that's when we're making dinner. And so um, it's really hard for me to try to um, balance my kids at home and extra activities such as you know podcasting or writing or any of those sorts of things i will say that this this realization came to me much later in life what happened was i was asked to do a 6 p.m um um, a 6 p.m like panel on work-life balance Mm. and i said yeah sure i'll do it and it was at the time it was like 2020 it was a pan the pandemic was going on my kids were at home so i i agreed to do the 6 p.m panel and what happened was I'm trying to answer questions virtually and my kids are like on the other side of the door mm-hmm. and they're trying to get in. So I literally like push my dresser against the door to like barricade them outside of the room. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting questions about like, Adara, like how's work-life balance? And I'm literally hearing my kids banging on the door. And I said, literally, no one is happy right now. Like everyone, my kids are upset. I'm frustrated. Mm. The audience members are in the panelists, moderators are trying to get my attention and they can clearly see that I'm distracted. So that was the first like light bulb that went off that, that let me know that I need to make a change. Yeah. And so the first change was like, I have to stop doing things like when my kids need me the most. Mm. And so that's like... That's like five to nine p.m. Yeah, there are some exceptions to that, but it's not a regular thing for me like it used to be. I mean, it used to be like regular, where I would always have meetings at five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock. Not anymore. Same hmm. thing for weekends. Like if I get invited to give a lecture um, at a conference, I'm and the, the lecture goes like Thursday through Sunday. I'm like, I have to be Thursday or Friday. I I can't be Saturday or Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that's um important too. 
is that I, I block my weekends. I really like that. Um, uh, your office hours are from yeah. nine to five. Hashtag Big Red. I I like that. Um, I'm I might I might steal that from you because I know that um, my wife. She's always like, oh, you're always. Running off somewhere, you're always going to uh, uh, this meeting, this board meeting, uh, this speaking and, and engagement. I I really like that. Um, so, as a uh, co-founder of a nonprofit, uh, what role do you believe healthcare professionals should play in addressing broader societal issues? That's such a good question, and and honestly, I think um, one of the uh, I guess. Like the the real reason why I wanted to create this nonprofit, and and I have a co-founder as well as you mentioned, who's amazing. Um, a lot of it came from my own personal experience. Um, when I went to college, I actually got accepted to Berkeley with a contingency. I I had to take this like um, remediation English class, hmm. and instead of being like two hours. Um, a week or or two hours a day, it was like four and a half hours plus off. It was like really intense. Wow. And it made me feel like, it made me feel like maybe I'm not a writer. I don't have good writing skills. I mean, I never struggled in high school. I didn't struggle in my SAT scores. I don't know why I was selected to take this class, but I was selected and I took it, got an A in the class, but it also made me feel like, I guess I'm not a writer. Mm. And so for many years, I didn't write and I got I think I got through most of my life sort of being like a middle author on papers. And when the George Floyd mur murder happened, I felt really motivated to write about it, but I didn't feel like I could do it by myself. So I enlisted a couple more people. Um, we came together and we wrote this article that came out in USA Today. And I said, oh my God, I feel so inspired to do this more. So I've mm. written with other folks, other doctors, um, and it's been amazing. But I also thought back to that time when I was in college and I was um, a, you know, a black woman in that class and almost everyone else in that class was a person of color. And how that messaging of like, you know, you can't write, how that, that's how I interpreted it. Maybe that wasn't the intention, mm -hmm. um, but I interpreted that. And so I think I've been inspired to try to make sure other people feel like they have this skill set. And so the, um, the, uh, nonprofits called Writing in Color, and we we focus on trying to teach people of color how to write. And it's it's a great gift, I think, that you can uh, give to yourself, give to mm. other people. Um, just understanding how you can take your voice, your thoughts, your emotions, and put it to paper so that other people can read. There's a lot of power behind that. Um, there's a lot of authority. There's a lot of influence. Um, it's also very therapeutic. And it helps other people heal and feel validated. Like, there's so many benefits. And if you look at a lot of of the literature, not just in like academia, but in like the lay press, if you look at books, like our voices are not nearly as included. This could be true for podcasting as well. I'm not so sure. But I know for sure for like the written media, mm -hmm. um, people of color are not nearly as represented. Uh, yeah, yeah, that that is still still the same thing still remains. Um, and and the odd thing about that is that um, I I myself love love to write. Um, I did not know that I was a good writer until grad school um, when I went to a HBCU. Up until mm -hmm. uh, up until then, um, you know, I thought that I was a pretty average writer until, uh, again, it was my first semester, my first paper, my first semester. Um, and my professor, I'll never forget, uh, Dr. Admo, he, he, he was like, um, do you know how good of a writer you are? And I was like, I actually thought that I was terrible at writing and was just floating, floating along just, you know, averagely. Um, so so that positive reinforce, uh, re <laughs> can't speak that uh, that um, positive. Uh, oh, man, I cannot speak. Um, reinforcement. <laughs> yes, you. yes, that you. positive reinforcement. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, so my um, next question here, uh, sticking sticking with uh, your writing, your contributions in Teen Vogue uh, cover a range of topics. Uh, so. How do you decide which issues to address and what impact do you hope uh, your insights will have on the audience? Yeah, I, you know, I started writing for um, Teen Vogue a few years ago after I saw a, a really amazing um, 
medical student um, featured for the work that she was doing. And um, I was inspired to really think about what are some of the positive stories um, that are out there that are centered around Black people that mm -hmm. no one is really talking about. We've seen a lot of, um, I'm sure you have watched a lot of movies that feel like they are exploiting us, that they are telling negative stories and keeping us in a perpetual sort of um, negative um, lens um, or perspective. And so I I, I wanted to, to tell stories that felt really inspiring, that um, were personal, mm -hmm. vulnerable. And so I've been finding, I've been trying to find physicians who have incredible backstories because I, I think those are really inspiring to people who are also interested in pursuing higher education. And so, you know, I found one student who, um, Dr. Russell Lede, um, who was a security guard um, at a hospital and wanted to be um, a doctor himself. So he would ask the, you know, the white doctors who were passing him by, like, can I come shadow you? And people would say, no, you're a security guard. And one person gave him a chance and um, he ended up actually going, you know, applying to medical school and coming back to be a medical student at the same hospital he used to be a security guard at. Wow. And so that that story, when I heard that, because, I, you know, I work with security guards, I'm sure you've seen them around, too. And you're just thinking, like, how many of these people who have dreams? Not that there's anything wrong with being a security guard. My, my You know, my father was in law enforcement. My brother's in law enforcement. There's nothing wrong with those. But I'm saying if you aspire to be more from mm. a professional standpoint, from an education standpoint, from a salary standpoint, and you're thinking that the people around you only only expect what you have and nothing more, that can be quite tough. And so... Those stories, that's that's one of them. I, I, I've i told a lot of other very inspiring stories that, you know, I'm just telling the story. They've done the work. Mm. Um, so I don't want to take credit for their work, but um, that are that I, I feel like we don't see those enough, you know, on big screens. We don't see those highlighted. I, I'm like, you know, a lot of people feel this way where it's like, I really don't want to see any more movies of us being slaves or criminals. Like, I, yeah. I want to see us being physicians or, and being lawyers and engineers and it's inspiring. And so, you know, I'm one small, small, small slice of the pie, but if I can keep us in that positive light, which I think many of us deserve, mm -hmm. um, th that's, that's a great role I'll take on. Yeah, 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 indeed. Um, I would love to see us in more of those roles as well. Um, I'm, I'm done seeing us in struggle roles. Um, um, I, I, I'm ready to see us more in those, uh, roles that we see, uh, other folks in. I'll leave it at that. So, um, uh, you also, um, are a startup consultant. Um, so how has your experience in the business world, uh, influenced your perspectives on healthcare and education? So for about two years, I, um, helped lead this team. Um, of engineers, um, uh, marketing agents or experts, um, sales reps, other physicians. Um, and we together designed this software platform that was for doctors and, and nurses and physician assistants to use to help capture ultrasound images so that we can sort of look at them later in time. I think the bigger picture here was that when I um, was a resident I think I mentioned to you this um, amazing mentor that I had. Um, her name was Dr. Blackstock. She um, told me that there's so much more that you can do with your MD than just see patients. Hmm. And um, right, that's sort of, that was my response because I think up until that time, I only imagined myself as being a clinician. Right. And so when you think of a doctor, you probably also think of someone who is just at the bedside or in the operating room or in the clinic taking care of patients, right? but there's actually a huge community of doctors who are doing much more than that. And she was the first person who sort of normalized it for me, as well as um, encouraged me to think about other things that I can do, such as taking my expertise as a physician who is ultrasound trained. I have a master's in ed education and innovation and technology as well. And using that and saying, what else can I do with it beyond just taking care of patients at the bedside? And so I took those skills of learning um, how to lead a team, right? Because as a physician, you're leading a team all the time. Mm -hmm. 
and put that into the, um, you know, the tech space and helped lead a team there um, and build a product. But all of those skill sets, right, of like communicating, um, delegating, um, navigating conflict, those skills are translatable no matter what specialty you're in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was able to sort of take a lot of the things that I had learned as a physician and move it into a different, you know, space. And I felt like it still worked out. Oh, indeed. Indeed it has. So um, um, I did say at the beginning of this that I was going to ask um, what emergency medicine is. So mm. uh, can you let the listener at home that is tuning in right now, can you let them know what emergency medicine is? Yeah. So, you, um, you know, if you've been to an emergency department and many of you probably call it the ER, um, we are, you know, the first line of defense for the hospital. We are the, the the folks you're going to see when you call 911 and you're brought to the hospital. You're usually going to start with seeing an emergency medicine team, and that can be made up of physician assistants, nurse practitioners, residents, medical students. Ultimately, the person who's responsible is going to be the um, the physician in many of the cases, so the MD or the DO. Um, and so we're usually the ones who are going to be making sure that the plan is accurate, that the that the patient is moving through the the flow or the process of being seen. So you know their labs are being done, their X-rays are being taken. A lot of what we do um, is is overseeing um, the entire process for any single patient, from like triage all the way to either discharge or admission. That's what we do when we are the you know supervising physician or the attending. Um, and sometimes, you know, you work alone. Like I've worked in places where I was the only, like it was just me and a nurse and like a tech. And if you came into our emergency department, you would see, you know, almost always the three of us, but it was just me as a physician making the care plan. So mm. there's a huge variety of, of emergency departments or ERs out there. And the team is going to be different no matter what. Like if you come in on a Monday, you're probably going to be seen by one set of people. If you come in on a Wednesday, a different set of people. Oh. That was one of the reasons why I liked working in the emergency room is that I've never in my 12 years now doing it, um, I've never worked with the same people twice. Oh, like wow. you were all, I mean, like the same team twice, right? Mm -hmm. Like I might have one person on this day and then a whole new set of people on the next day that didn't overlap at all with the prior team. Like it's always new people, always new people because it's, it's shift work. Yeah. And so um, it's great in that you, you see anything from ankle sprains to strokes to um, you know, heart attacks. And, and when I say it's great, I mean, it's great because we like, we like to care for these patients, mm. right? Like it's not great that these things are happening to right. patients, but it's great that like you have a doctor who wants to be there taking care of you in this capacity. Like you want your doctor to be interested in this sort of thing. And so for me, I'm interested in the high acuity, the unpredictable nature, mm. the um, the fact that like you have to sort of plan through the chaos. I, I, I like that aspect of it. I also like that it's shift work. Mm. And so like next week, I'm going to work, I think like eight shifts in 12 days or something like that. But then I have the rest of December off. And oh, wow. so like I so I, I start like I'll have 12 days, you know, where there's eight shifts in that in that range. And then I have the following two weeks off. And so I, I sort of stack my shifts so that I have a pretty good balanced lifestyle. Oh, that is nice. That is nice. So um, how how do you stay informed um, about the latest advancements in emergency medicine and how important is it to be a continuous learner in your field? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I love that question. Um, you know, I'm in academics or, you know, academia. Um, I'm an academic doctor. And so what that means is um, that we we really surround ourselves with education everywhere. And it's not mm -hmm. that doctors in rural environments or the community don't. I think they're still learning too. There's probably a difference in volume and frequency. Um, so for us, there's like conference every week. Um, and then, you know, we have our faculty meeting where there's almost always an educational topic um, that is being taught to us that's evidence-based. So it's really hard to avoid because I feel like they sort of, um, you know, feed it to you constantly. Like, this is the latest, this is the latest. I work, I mean, I'm very humbled by who I work with. Like, I work amongst 
the top expert in my field because of where I work. So mm-hmm. like the people who are around me are like the leading researcher in particular topics. Like they're sought out for their expertise. And so we're just working a shift with him. You hear them talk and teach and, and explain um, a lot of concepts that might be not my strength, but their strength and vice versa. And so my, my expertise is in ultrasound. So if you've ever been to the emergency room and the doctor brings over a machine to look at your heart, um, it's, it's called point of care ultrasound. Mm-hmm. That's my expertise. And so, um, for a large part of my career, I spent teaching other doctors how to use ultrasound as well. Oh, wow. Wow. This is, uh, th- th- this is a great interview. I mean, I'm, I'm learning, uh, so much about yourself, um, and your field. I, I hope that the listener, uh, you, the listener that is listening at home, um, are picking up what, uh, the doctor is putting down here. On the Melanin Report, we like to celebrate dopeness and celebrate black excellence. Uh, and you being a a black lady doctor, you know, we got to uh, uh, give it up to you and give it up for you. We, we have this thing where we say black lady doctor. And uh, and and for you um, uh, being a black lady doctor, uh, what are some of the challenges uh, that that you have uh, have have faced and are currently facing? Well, the challenges are um, dense, deep. There's a long list. Mm. I think the current the current thing that I'm seeing is a lot of Black women leaving medicine. Really? Uh, and I think you know it's justified. I would never, ever, ever question anyone's um, decision. I think um, um, it's it's obviously sad to see, but everyone has has their own capacity for what they can handle yeah. in, in terms of stress. And I trust that the people who are leaving are making the right and healthy decision for themselves. Um, and I'm happy for them. And I'm also recognizing that the only reason why I made it to where I am right now was because, you know, I think my first mentor was a black woman who really, really um, helped me and supported me earlier in my career. And so when I when I see my peers leaving, again, for very justified legitimate reasons i think about all the black women to come who are going to have one less amazing mentor available for them let's say in academics um but i also think like it's not my it's not their responsibility to stay in a harmful harmful situation um for the sake of like someone else years from now who might be interested in becoming a doctor like that's, that's a really big burden to ask of someone you might be wondering like, what is the harm? Like, why are people leaving? Um, a lot of it is similar things that you see in just general society, you know, racism, mm. sexism, ageism, colorism. Um, and so those things happen in the workplace just like they would in any other, um, you know, um, environment. And I think you can only take so much before you're like, I could be valued elsewhere. I can use my MD elsewhere. I, 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 you know, I, I don't, I don't need to feel the the stress and I'll be honest, like I'm part-time. I don't, th- I don't plan on cutting back anymore, but I, I had to cut back too during the pandemic because mm-hmm. it was just too much. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was just too much for everyone. And I think a lot of us have a very um, reasonable and expected amount of PTSD or dread that stems from what we saw, what we faced during the pandemic. Yeah that still carries on today where it's like there's there's so many downstream effects of the pandemic it's it's hard to even explain in a pod in a podcast but you know um i'll take one example and and i'll I'll just sort sort of show you what this means so Mm -hmm. right now is if if you were to get accept um, admitted to a hospital right like if you come into my emergency room and i say you have pneumonia hopefully you don't ever get this but if you had pneumonia you need to come into the hospital for antibiotics pre-covid you would come into the emergency room and maybe two or three hours would pass and you would get a bed upstairs. There'd be an open bed. And so, you know, a transport technician would take you up to your room and you would see a doctor there who would give you the medications. And when you felt better, you would go home. Mm-hmm. You might be in the hospital for one or two days. Very smooth process. But now, since COVID, for sure, um, there has become a border situation. Um, and and the boarding situation is like a national problem. It's not specific to my hospital or institution. It's like across the country. Mm-hmm. And um, 
where now if you if you come in and you had pneumonia and I said, okay, you have pneumonia, it would be much harder. There's 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 a lot more delay. So you might not see me right away. You might be waiting in the emergency room because now there are such longer wait waiting times to even be seen. You're just sitting in the emergency room. So instead of maybe five people in the emergency room before COVID, there's like 30, mm. like regularly. And so now you're waiting for to be triaged and you're waiting for hours. You come into triage and then now you you have to potentially go back to the waiting room and then wait to be seen by the doctor. Mm. And you see me, I say you have pneumonia and you need to be admitted, but there are no beds upstairs. It's all full. Everything is full upstairs. So now your 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 three day hospital stay is in the emergency room, mm. and you might actually be in the hallway the entire time. And so, as you can imagine, no one wants to be sleeping in a hallway yeah. where there's people walking by at all hours. There's bright lights in their face. There's beeping and emerge. I mean, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So patients are getting upset, and patients are justified in getting upset. Yeah. But all of that frustration. Right. From like the upstairs teams to the downstairs teams, to the patients, to the triage, to the waiting rooms, to all the metrics that you need to move faster and and make more money for the hospital. Like all of that just creates a boiling point for many people. Mm -hmm. You add on to that being a woman, a black woman, being someone who potentially has um, any other marginalized identities on top of that, like the stress just compounds, you know, you have p- kids at home, you're tired because of that, or elderly parents you care for, you're not getting paid enough, you have student loans. That's why people are leaving. That's, I mean, that's a big reason why people are leaving is because mm. there's no release. The pressure is just big and big and big. And then when, when COVID happened, we thought that we were going to go back to normal. And so we're like, okay, it's only going to be when COVID first came in like February, we were like, oh, it's only going to be for two weeks. It'll be gone for the summer. I don't know if you remember that, but there was like a lot of initial thought that it's going to go really quickly. And that hasn't happened. There's no release. So I don't mean to discourage anyone who's considering medicine, um, but I want people to understand like what they're getting into, Mm. you know, because it's a it's a different field today than it was when I first entered. That's for sure. I I loved um, that you highlighted the uh, downstream effects of COVID, and and I I really think that that is a conversation um, that that we are not having uh, too much of. That that I believe that we should be having uh, a lot more conversations about and around. Um, so our our um, final question here, I, I would like to uh, uh, thank you for for joining us um, on the Melanin Report. Dr. Landry, this has been um, insightful, and I can't wait to have you uh, come back on the show uh, to talk about your upcoming book. What projects or initiatives are you currently working on uh, that you are particularly excited about? Oh, that's so interesting. Um, Well, the book is for sure still a very active project. I'll just plug it. It's called Micro Skills, Small Actions, Big Impact. You can order a pre-sale now with my co-author, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Um, I think, honestly, the biggest goal that I have right now is to try to um, live in the moment with my kids Mm -hmm. and my husband and myself. Um, Because I think you can think about um, goals in terms of the workplace all day long. Mm. Like and money, like I want more money, I want more power. Um, but I'm really trying to think about time as my goal. Like mm. I want more control over my time. That's so important to me. And I think a lot of that stems from like what I do for a living is so sad. I mean, it's so you 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 see people who are like so young, our age, you know, um, with cancer mm. or like really really other debilitating chronic illnesses, and they don't, you know, no one deserves it. Um, and it's also really hard to see it in people who thought that they had a longer life, a longer, healthier life ahead of them. And so I think seeing that so much um, has really made me uh, really f- feel like I need to be in the moment. Mm. Um, I used to be like uh, in this like uh, movement called FIRE. I don't know if you ever heard of FIRE, Financial Independence, Retire Early. It's like this whole mm. thing. There's like a whole community culture. There's a whole body of literature out there on, on FIRE. And the whole purpose is that you try your hardest to gain as much money as you can as early as you can so that you can retire early. 
And in theory, that makes sense. Like, I don't want to retire when I'm 65 either, because who knows if I have a stroke or a heart attack at 70 and I only have five years, you know, where I can actually yeah. enjoy freedom. And so in theory, that makes sense. Like if you can gain as much capital as you can, when you re retire early, you have a long life ahead of you without working. The downside of this whole process that I've sort of come to realize over the last few years is that you really miss out on the now mm. by just thinking so much about money, 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 money. And life might actually be much better if you slow down a little bit on like those ambitions of like I like I, I want to gain as much wealth as I can. I want to I want to be as financially independent as I can. And you're just thinking about like I really want to be able to control my time. Mm. And there's a little bit of a link between the two for sure. Um, but I also want people to to just not work so hard because like like I said, I I unfortunately see the worst of things um, in my line of business and. Um, I think a lot of people are shocked at, at how quickly a single diagnosis can like totally uproot their lives. My final question for for today, um, as as someone who has navigated multiple fields successfully, what overarching message or advice would you like to share with our aspiring professionals that are listening today, especially those pursuing careers in medicine and education? What would you have to say to them? You know, the point of entry was always another contact. Like mm. it, it was for almost everything I had someone, and, and I don't mean to discre discredit my own knowledge or skill set or ambition, but like there was always someone helping me, mm. either just helping me with like the clarity of my thoughts, helping me with a letter of recommendation, helping me with mentioning an opportunity, but there was always someone helping. And I think that's really important to emphasize that like, you really can move farther, further, um, if you have people helping you. Mm. And that requires two things. A, it requires you to put yourself out there and get to know people and what they have to offer. And the second, I think it's equally important is for you to show people what you have, what you have to offer and how you can help them, right? This is like a two-way process. Mm. And you have to make sure that you are um, helping other people and um, also, you know, like making that very clear, like, hey, if you ever need anything in return or if there's anything that I can do for you, please let me know. Because I think it's very easy to just take, 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 take. Um, so I think I think that's important, like recognizing your network and then recognizing what you can give to those folks, too. Folks, that was Dr. Adara Landry joining us on the Melanin Report. Dr. Landry, do you have um, anything else before we wrap this thing up? Thank you for joining us. You know, I, I'm going to say take the opportunity in front of you, right? I'm here because I saw the, I saw an opportunity posted on a Slack group and I said, I'm going to reach out to them mm. and see if they would take me and take, you know, a chance on listening to my story. And so Almost everything that has come my way, like I have actively sought after. Mm. And so I think it's really important for you to understand that you are driving your own journey. Mm. Manifestation. I love it. I, <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, and on that note, folks, we are going to put a pin in it. Again, I would like to thank Dr. Landry for joining us on the Melanin Report. This has been nothing short of amazing. And I hope you the listener was able to pick up what she was putting down. So you know how we like to end each show. We like to end each show with a quote from the goat. So our goat today is Mary J. Blige. And she Ooh. says, there's so many things that life is. And no matter how many breakthroughs, trials will exist. And we're going to get through it by being strong and by only being strong. This is the Melanin Report. I am Marquise Lupton. Trust your dopeness and we'll see you on the other side. Peace. God bless anyone within the sound of my voice. This is Dr. Vega. My heart and prayers go out to all that have been affected by the Rona-19. 
Rest in peace to my cousin Sonny. Wolfman. Rest in we peace to Fred the God. The Wolf, thank you, brethren. Much respect. This song's purpose is to bring inspiration, healing, and hope to the world. We will survive, baby. Stay strong. Keep the hope. Keep the faith. And remember, quitting is not an option. Let's go, Wolf. Let's go. Just keep the faith inside. Press along with your by your side.